0: i my God, is still cold! The Hellraiser is full! Here we go! Evolution of the Shield! John Cena versus the her. Hulk Hogan and The Rock in the same ring! You will never take my
1: place at the head of the table! Undertaker! With a Haskell submission! Oh my God! What? My God, Michaels! Just kick Cena's head off! The
0: It'll be the Raw! It'll be Austin 101! Third and five! Do you
2: believe in miracle? The streak is over! Hey, what's going on, guys? And welcome back to Rivals of the WWE Podcast on this Friday, March 4th. And as I am back from a one week hiatus, or two week hiatus, actually. When you factor in that uh, I missed um, rivalries last week, Matt and I couldn't find a time to get together for what if but finally I am back here behind the microphone to give you guys some quality contact content rather about some really good rivalries. And this week I'm thinking back to the ruthless aggression era as I often do but I'm gonna go about something a bit different. This week, because typically, obviously, I do rivalries between wrestlers or tag teams, the odd faction here and there. But this time, I'm going to give the rivalry of SmackDown versus Raw with a hint of ECW during the Ruthless Aggression era. And I thought about this for two reasons. One of which, because With WWE putting all their eggs in the basket of the champion versus champion match, the unification match at WrestleMania between Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, I think it's a pretty good opportunity for me to explain to everyone what it meant to have two legitimate world champions back in the inaugural brand split and how even they felt at the time. And second of all... I think it's to give you guys some context, because oftentimes I come on here and I talk about, I would say the vast majority of times, rivalries from the Ruthless Aggression era. But I'm sure for many of you, you didn't watch during that time, whether or not you were too young or whether or not you started watching wrestling only in the PG era or in the reality era or even maybe the last several years. Or maybe there were some of you who took a break during the Ruthless Aggression Era. You watched it Attitude Era and Golden Era. And then when you got into the early 2000s when Rock and Austin left, you came back in the recent years. So we're going to start all the way back in 2002 for the inaugural draft that WWE held. And if you guys remember, it started, the brand split that is, with Ric Flair coming back and revealing that he had bought the stocks that Shane and Stephanie McMahon had sold when they formed the Alliance. And Shane was the owner on screen, of course, of WCW, and Stephanie was the owner of ECW. Ric Flair returns and reveals that he is a 50-50 owner of the WWF. This ultimately leads to Vince becoming the owner of SmackDown, And Raw being owned by Ric Flair, and in the inaugural draft, Vince McMahon was awarded the first overall selection for SmackDown, and the first ever overall selection for SmackDown would set the tone for the for the succeeding four to five years.
1: This is JR. Nervous. I I got butterflies the size of eagles in my stomach. Thank you very much for that warm Penn State reception.
0: Since I, Vince McMahon, defeated Ric Flair in the coin toss, it is my distinction to choose the very first individual, the first individual in the history of the World Wrestling Federation to be drafted. The number one pick comes to me, Vince McMahon. So on behalf of WWF SmackDown, I, Vince McMahon, choose...
1: The Rock! Whoa! And there you hear it. The first pick in the draft. Oh, look! The Brahma Bull. And there you see The Rock. The Rock has been selected number one by Mr. McMahon. Wait, what an honor! He doesn't look too happy! Most number one picks are overjoyed! I mean, where's The Rock going? It looks like... Headed our way, The Rock, as you can see, the youngest man to ever win the World Wrestling Federation Championship, the first ever third generation World Wrestling Federation Championship.
2: So Vince selects The Rock with the first ever first overall selection in a WWE draft. And you have to remember that Stone Cold Steve Austin was exempt from this draft and was kind of billed as a free agent in large part to what was going on in his personal life at the time. And as we all know, a a mere three, maybe four months later, he would walk out on the WWF for just about six, seven months. So The Rock going to SmackDown, which made a lot of sense, right, because it was named after him, really set the tone because you were sending arguably the biggest star that the WWF had to offer over to what had often been thought of and has often been thought of up until maybe a few years ago as the B-Show. So The Rock goes to SmackDown along with the likes of Kurt Angle, you also have Hulk Hogan, Edge, Chris Benoit, Billy Gunn, and another list of guys who were farther down the card. And on Monday Night Raw, you had The Undertaker, The NWO, which consisted Xbox, Hall, and uh, Kevin Nash, Kane, Rob Van Dam, Booker T. But these rosters would not last far too long because, as we all know, The Rock would be not hang up his boots as a full-time competitor... I would say, just about five months later, following his defeat to Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam in 2002, you had The Undertaker quickly jump ship back over to SmackDown. Big Show jumped over to SmackDown. Hulk Hogan was one foot in, one foot out. Triple H would eventually become exclusive to Monday Night Raw. HBK would come back as a full-time competitor over on Monday Night Raw. Chris Jericho would be traded to Monday Night Raw in favor of... um, Who was it? Uh, Eddie Guerrero would come over to SmackDown. So the original draft selections that we saw weren't really indicative of what we would be accustomed to for the years to come. Because it quickly became Raw as almost the, I would say, the nostalgic show while SmackDown was becoming the pure wrestling show. And by Raw becoming the nostalgic show, that's not to say that SmackDown didn't have their fair share of nostalgic competitors. The Undertaker, arguably the most nostalgic wrestler of all time, was over there almost all the time, to- uh, almost throughout his entire career. Following the brand split, Kurt Angle, of course, at that point, Chris Benoit, a fairly significant history behind him, The Big Show. But when you looked at Monday Night Raw and who was at the top of that roster. You had a guy like Triple H who unofficially kind of became the face of the company following the departures of Rock and Austin in late 2000 or mid to late 2002. A returning Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash kicked around until mid 2003. Chris Jericho made his way over there. Eventually you had Scott Steiner return for a quick run. Goldberg, a WCW legend. Raw was the show that you would look to for those familiar names. And it quickly even got more of that reputation when Vince would appoint the first ever Raw general manager when him and Ric Flair would step back from their on-screen roles as the respective owners of each brand. And when Vince introduced the first ever general manager of Raw, it went shock- It sent shockwaves through the wrestling industry.
1: This crowd is still buzzing just moments ago, and here comes Mr. McMahon back. He promised to name the new general manager of Raw. I feel like Booker T, tell me I didn't just see Eric Bischoff. I'd like to think that's not it. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, we saw Shane, and Shane wasn't it. Come on, Vince. Well, he said he's going to announce the new GM before the hour. He's got about a minute left. Come on. You know you don't
0: realize this, but it takes a real son of a bitch to be successful in this business. So from one son of a bitch to another, allow me to introduce you to the new general manager of RAW. His name is
1: Eric Bischoff! I cannot believe this! Absolutely, it's shock. It's him. I can't even begin to tell our viewers, our new viewers, but this is going look to be look, look at this! used to sit the same broadcast booth every Monday night with Vince, but he would he would wish death upon Eric Bischoff. And now they're hugging each other. Look at this. They're probably picking each other's pockets. I've got 25 years of the business, and it comes down to where Eric Bischoff is my new boss. I've always loved By God, am I a lucky battle Oklahoma. Well, you know, as long as he's fair and firm, and uh, he's got full authority, and, and Vince is giving him his unqualified support. But firm but fair. If he comes over here, you're going to shake hands with him? Hello. Well. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I have seen a lot of things in this company transpire. I can't tell you well, what this means to me. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means different me. For those of
0: you who may not know me, my name is Eric Bischoff, and I used to run WCW. Not that watered-down version, by the way, that invaded this company, but the real deal. You see, when I ran WCW, I became famous. That's right. I was the only person ever able to take it right to Vince
1: McMahon. That would be me. I remember those battles, and that's true. In fact,
0: when Vince was out here a couple of weeks ago talking about ruthless aggression, just who the hell do you think he was talking
1: about? He's ruthless, folks. Very ruthless.
2: So there's a little taste of what the first ever experience was of Eric, as Eric Bischoff as Raw general manager. And Vince bringing him in really set the tone for the entire Ruthless Aggression era. And one funny thing about that clip is that he actually originally debuted with the theme song back in black and you actually hear jerry lawler bring that up and allude to it but i guess for copyright reasons they just dubbed over the uh the theme song with his current and historical theme song and another thing i don't know about you guys who have the network but if you go back and watch old clips there is a lot of dubbing over the theme songs in old wwe um in old wwe content like I remember watching the the ECW one night stand and they dub over the enter Sandman uh, entrance theme that they used for the Sandman or a few times with the Undertaker or Hulk Hogan's uh, voodoo child gimmick is dubbed over and very, very annoying because I, I love entrance themes or at least historical ones, but that's neither here nor there. But Bischoff coming in as Raw general manager further cemented Raw as the nostalgic more entertainment show. And Brian gewartz I can't pronounce his name properly, who is now a, uh, a producer and writer for The Rock, not a producer, writer for The Rock's production company, was the lead writer for Monday Night Raw during the Ruthless Aggression era. And during WWE's Ruthless Aggression tapes and, well, not tapes, their episodes and series he brought up the fact that Raw was more of the entertainment-based show, and that's exactly what it was. It was the show that the average casual fan could tune in and be like, oh, there's Eric Bischoff. I remember him running Nitro during the, the height of the Monday Night Wars. Oh, there's Goldberg. Oh, there's Kevin Nash. There's Steiner. All those guys from WCW. Oh, Shawn Michaels. Oh, Triple H. Oh, they were at the top of their games during the the Attitude Era, they had all the stars that were big in yesteryear. But at that time, the late 90s were not that far gone. You know, this was late 2002, and we quickly got into 2003. Like, that was only five, maybe six years post the height of the Monday Night Wars. And we were just, just, just coming out of the Attitude Era. So guys like Triple H and then more so Trish Jericho, but he kind of came on in the later years of the Attitude Era. These were all the stars that were recognizable to the casual fan. When you moved over to SmackDown is where you got a product that was more wrestling based. It was more wrestling heavy and more so geared for the hardcore fan. The fans that probably came from watching indies or came from watching ECW. And coincidentally enough, you had Paul Heyman as the lead writer to SmackDown at that time. And again, in the Ruthless Aggression series, he brings up several times that they knew that SmackDown was the B show and they wanted to make Raw their B word. I'm sure you guys could figure that out and they would do so as being more of the wrestling-based show. And look at the guys they had. Eddie Guerrero, Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, Edge, although he was more injured more often than not during his time over on SmackDown, you had The Undertaker, you had Brock Lesnar. And Brock Lesnar going to SmackDown was the only thing that really legitimized SmackDown as a legitimate contender to Raw. As the next big thing, the what we thought would be the future face of the company being shifted over to the blue brand, along with the WWE Championship, them sending the WWE Championship over to SmackDown really was kind of a signal like, okay, we're going to take this brand split seriously. We are going to put the most prestigious title that this company has to offer and with the most lineage over on the blue brand. And then you have a guy like The Undertaker who completely made his home over on SmackDown after being the first overall selection to Monday Night Raw. You had a guy like Kurt Angle who was kind of coming into his own as almost the one, the elder statesman. On the WWE roster a guy like the big show kind of transitioning into more of a legacy star at this point and then you had a few blue chip guys coming up the ranks there in most significant most notably rather John Cena and then obviously you get the rock return he has his final program with Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan as well he kind of ended his time as a full-time competitor or a semi-regular um a guy who would appear on WWE television in 2003. And that was exclusively on SmackDown during Hulk Hogan's run from early 2002 till mid 2003, when he eventually became captain America and during his feud with Vince McMahon, he was exclusively on SmackDown. He was never over on Monday night raw. So they did in a lot of ways, bring some legacy stars back, but more in the, more in the part of part-timers like when the rock returned into early 2003 he showed up on smackdown once aside from the one time via satellite he had his match with hogan at no way out the next night he shows up on monday night raw and then after that the rock never really showed back up on smackdown until his return to the company in 2012 2013 hulk hogan would be done as even a semi-regular appearer uh by mid-2003 But even Vince McMahon, obviously nowadays we are way more accustomed to seeing him on Monday Night Raw. And even in the later years of Ruthless Aggression, he was always on Monday Night Raw, most notably during his feud with Degeneration X or more specifically Shawn Michaels. But in the early years of the Attitude Era, Vince McMahon was more so on SmackDown. He was the initial owner of SmackDown. He was the head of SmackDown. You know, he returned to face Hulk Hogan on SmackDown. He returned to kind of align himself with Brock Lesnar on SmackDown, have the I Quit match against his own daughter on SmackDown, the Buried Alive match against The Undertaker on SmackDown. So, although we always knew that Raw was the flagship show of WWE, it wasn't like they threw SmackDown to the wolves. And I would say that in the first calendar year, Of the ruthless aggression era they made a conceded effort to really emphasize that no smackdown was just as important as monday night raw most notably the first wrestlemania where the brand split was in full effect and that was wrestlemania 19 and wrestlemania 19's main event was brock lesnar versus kurt angle for the wwe championship And over on the Raw side of things, you had Booker T versus Triple H for the World Heavyweight Championship. Now, obviously, it isn't so much apples to apples because Raw's true main event at that pay-per-view was Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Rock. And I think that plays a big factor as to why the Booker T-Triple H rivalry was so lackluster as it ultimately became because you had rock and austin in the twilight of their respective careers or not so much the rock but completely stone cold steve austin it was his final match and in terms of their rivalry it was completely the twilight of that rivalry the most historic rivalry rivalry we've ever seen in professional wrestling and the fact that they held that rivalry over on monday night raw kind of showed in a backdoor way where they thought Raw was in comparison to SmackDown. Because again, Austin was never officially drafted to Raw. He was just challenged and brought back by Eric Bischoff. The Rock was the first overall selection in the draft to SmackDown. So the fact that they moved The Rock over to Monday Night Raw is indicative that they wanted this final installment of the biggest rivalry that they've ever had in the history of the business over on Monday Night Raw. And following that rivalry and that WrestleMania, you kind of felt the tide start to shift in favor of them prioritizing Monday Night Raw. And it didn't happen right away because for, I would say, the first half of 2003 you really had Brock Lesnar and Kurt Angle and even The Undertaker carrying the load for WWE. Like over on the Raw side of things in terms of the main event world championship picture, it really didn't start to feel all that important until Goldberg got in the mix. Because from September 2002 to August 2003, or September 2003 actually, You had Triple H as the consistent World Heavyweight Champion. And I won't subscribe to the narrative that it was his reign of terror and he buried people. They had no one else. And I know everyone says Booker Tisha got on a run with the championship i think that's just hindsight being 2020 i don't think booker t was ready for that world heavyweight championship run at that stage of his career i know he was a five-time champ in wcw but his placement in the wwe at that point he wasn't ready for it and he would eventually get his run three years later over on smackdown you had the botched return of scott steiner they had the short-lived rivalry with Nash and and Triple H. You had the short-lived rivalry and the infamous Katie Vick Vic angle between Triple H and Kane. The World Heavyweight Championship picture was not all that intriguing all up until Goldberg really got involved. And I was actually mis- misspoke when I was um when I outlined Triple H's run as Champ before he actually lost the belt for a brief period from Survivor Series 02. Until Armageddon 2002, when Shawn Michaels won it and held it for just about a month. But even Shawn Michaels, like him coming back was a big deal, but he quickly moved down to, let's say, the upper mid card. And I think that was more just Shawn Michaels not wanting to be a part of the World Championship picture. But when Goldberg got involved and he started to tangle with Triple H, and they had that elimination chamber match at 2000, at the 2003. SummerSlam, that's where it felt like Monday Night Raw truly started to take off in the ruthless aggression era version of the brand split. And Goldberg wins the championship, and that's when it started to feel like there was a separation in place here. And even though Brock was still champion and he was still feuding with Kurt Angle and they had traded the championship a few times over the course of the summer and fall of 2003, when Goldberg won the championship and you go into Survivor Series and then you have Team Bischoff versus Team Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that's not to say that Team Angle versus Team Lesnar wasn't entertaining, but this whole era of Monday Night Raw... In the later part of 2003, it was much watched television. while it started to just become redundant over on SmackDown. It was Brock. It was Angle. It was Brock. It was Angle. It was Brock, Angle, Brock, Angle. One was a babyface. One was a heel. Now Brock was a babyface. Now Angle's a heel. Oh, now Kurt Angle returns as a babyface and Brock turns heel on him. They just were running out of storylines. And then you had The Undertaker get buried alive as his biker gimmick was starting to get stale as well. And Stephanie McMahon gets ousted as the SmackDown general manager. And Stephanie McMahon was a good general manager in the beginning. I thought she brought kind of like a fresh face, a female authority figure, one that we had not had at any point in the Attitude Era or you know, during the Nitro era over at WCW or in the early parts of Ruth's aggression over on Monday Night Raw. So her as a babyface over on SmackDown was nice for a bit, but it kind of got stale after a while. And when she got ousted as the SmackDown GM, Vince made a decision to bring in the real life lead writer of SmackDown as now the on-screen general manager of SmackDown.
0: He's someone that, if he's around you for any length of time, you find yourself reaching for his throat just so you can strangle him. But but nonetheless, without a doubt, this person is one of the most ingenious, creative, and manipulative minds in, in the history of this business. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you your new general manager of SmackDown. I give you Paul Heyman No No no. way Oh my god No He's back Yeah he's back alright Yuck The mood on Smackdown
1: just changed as we know it Paul Heyman general manager Paul Heyman shaking Mr. McMahon's hand in the middle of the ring
2: And Paul Heyman showing up as the on-screen general manager of SmackDown, in my opinion, was very fitting. Because you had the new, you know, I guess you could say it was a tired type of gimmick, but it's kind of something that's age old. The heel authority figure over on Monday Night Raw with Eric Bischoff. Why not try it on SmackDown? I thought that these two were the two best general managers in the history of Raw and SmackDown, respectively. And I thought that Heyman really breathed new life into SmackDown. And not right away, of course, because you still have Brock as champion. And you still had, you know, Kurt Angle at the top of the card. And Booker and Big Show at the top of the card. But in early 2004, a couple months following Heyman's insertion as SmackDown GM, you had a big shift in... In the landscape of both Monday Night Raw and SmackDown, and none was bigger than following the Royal Rumble in 2004, when Chris Benoit, uh, when SmackDown's Chris Benoit, made a shocking decision following his victory at the Royal Rumble.
0: Goes on to WrestleMania to face the champion. Now, what the rules don't state is which champion that winner faces. Shawn Michaels, like I said, you wrestled your ass off last night. You wrestled one hell of a match. But you did not win the Royal Rumble. Chris Benoit did. So right now, I'd like the winner of the 2004 Royal Rumble to come out here to this ring.
2: Showing up on Monday Night Raw completely changed the landscape of Monday Night Raw (laughs) because you had this guy who had historically been a mid-carder over on SmackDown, had not held the singles championship in God knows how many years, I believe it was the Intercontinental title back in 2001, if I'm not mistaken, now show up on the opposite show and insert himself into the main event picture. And as we know, he goes on to win the World Heavyweight Championship at WrestleMania 20. And over on SmackDown, you have Eddie Guerrero, who was in the similar tier as Chris Benoit, go on to win the WWE Championship at No Way Out 2004. And this ushered in a new era on both shows. But one, but neither would really last long. Because as I outlined a few weeks ago, Guerrero would lose his championship at the Great American Bash, and Benoit would lose his championship at at SummerSlam 2004 to Randy Orton. And over on SmackDown, you're really trying to find new top-tier talent, as opposed to Monday Night Raw, where you still had that same top-tier talent at your disposal. Because as we know, the Randy Orton experience did not last long with him as the babyface world champion, and Triple H quickly regained the championship in the fall of 2004 and would pretty much hold it all the way until WrestleMania 21. He would lose it for a brief period where it would get vacated, but he would quickly regain it and New Year's Revolution in early 2005. And on SmackDown, you had John Bradshaw Layfield hold the WWE championship right until WrestleMania 21. And this is when you really had the dawn of a new era For both Raw and SmackDown. You had John Cena flying up the ranks of the SmackDown roster throughout 2004. He was the US Champion, I believe, on three separate occasions. Really legitimized that title. Had a great program with Booker T along the way. And over on Monday Night Raw, you had the likes of Randy Orton who kind of peaked And then went down real quick and started reinventing himself back as a singles heel as he kind of tangled with the dead man. And then you had one of the most organic pushes of this time in Batista lead into WrestleMania against Triple H. And lo and behold, you have Triple H and John Bradshaw Layfield drop their respective titles to the new faces of the company in in Batista over on Monday Night Raw and John Cena over on SmackDown. And then we get to the draft in 2005, in the month of June. And the first selection of this draft was arguably the biggest selection in the history of all WWE drafts, because it would shake the landscape of Monday Night Raw, and to be honest, for SmackDown, for the preceding decade. John Cena going to Monday Night Raw shook the landscape of the two brands forever in a lot of ways. And I know technically John Cena went back to SmackDown for a brief period, but he became the face of Monday Night Raw. And to be honest, SmackDown never really recovered. SmackDown never really recovered from John Cena switching to Monday Night Raw. And they did a damn good job trying to re-legitimize it. I thought Batista going there early on kind of helped, uh, I guess, uh, soften the blow. But it quickly became evident that John Cena was the guy. Also, it didn't help that Batista would get hurt in, I believe it was December of 2005 and have to vacate the championship. But even when he came back, he was fighting upstream. I think that the the run of Edge and Undertaker kind of salvaged it a bit, but that was kind of post-Ruthless Aggression Era. Ruthless Aggression Era pretty much ended in uh, early 2007 following WrestleMania 23. In my opinion, WrestleMania 23 was really the, the, the cherry on top of the Ruthless Aggression Era when John Cena defeated Shawn Michaels for... Uh, Well, in the main event for the WWE Championship, him retaining that title. And John Cena going over here really was the, I guess, the crowning moment that, okay, these, these two brands were on even footing for a while, but now this is the Monday Night Raw show. And John Cena, our biggest star, is going to be on Monday Night Raw. And... You know, on SmackDown, they they tried to salvage it, like I said. You had the very um feel-good story and run of Rey Mysterio winning the world heavyweight championship. You had Booker T with a very underrated run as the World Heavyweight Champion. Obviously, the Undertaker winning the World Heavyweight Championship at WrestleMania 23. But again, when The Undertaker got it back into the world championship picture and Edge moved over to over on SmackDown, that was kind of more into the PG era. But for the duration of the ruthless aggression era from the summer of 05 until, you know, WrestleMania 23 in April of 2007, it was it was raw all the way. And obviously in 2006, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you kind of have had ECW get into the mix a bit. But even them, they never really got off the ground because the biggest face that was going over to ECW was Kurt Angle. And he lasted, what, a month over there before he eventually quit and went and defected over to Impact Wrestling. Also, Chris Benoit never made it really over there because of the tragedy that unfolded with him and his family. And they tried it with Bobby Lashley, but even a guy like Bobby Lashley, he eventually moved over to Monday Night Raw following a fairly successful run with the ECW championship. And then he would ultimately leave the company as well. So ECW really never got into the fight with Raw and SmackDown during the Ruthless Aggression era. And not to mention it was just a complete failure, just a complete and utter failure Uh, from let's say mid 2006 until whenever it lasted, I want to say in 2009, but, um, all in all during the ruthless aggression era, I would say that SmackDown put up a hell of a fight. And in the early years of the ruthless aggression era, let's say later 2002 until mid 2003, they were arguably the better show. But I think that slowly, but surely raw fought back. And when they sent John Cena from SmackDown to Raw, that was pretty much the nail in the coffin for SmackDown during the Ruthless Aggression era. And I remember just the interest to watch SmackDown dwindled bit by bit by bit by bit. And by the time you got in the neighborhood of WrestleMania 23 and beyond, it really wasn't worth watching anymore. And then quickly thereafter is where they really started to loosen up the rules to the brand split. And SmackDown quickly became an afterthought all the way up until 2016. And I guess that's what I would advise WWE of before they start venturing towards ending the brand split. I don't know if they're going to do that. But when you start unifying world championships, you're kind of creeping down that trail a bit, creeping down that road. And I think every time they do that, SmackDown by osmosis becomes not irrelevant, but not as important. And from, let's say, 2009, 2010, all the way until 2016, until they brought back the hard brand split, SmackDown wasn't a necessity to watch. All you had to do was watch Monday Night Raw to keep in touch with the major storylines. SmackDown felt like Sunday Night Heat or Velocity. It felt like a B-show that where you get some good matches, you get some good wrestling, but in terms of the major storylines, nothing would progress until you got to Monday Nights on Raw. And I don't want them to go back to that because I think since 2016, and especially since Fox bought the rights to SmackDown and they got Roman Reigns over there as the face of the brand, they have done done a damn good job of making SmackDown feel important, and I would say for about over a year now has been far and away the A show. But if you start having Roman Reigns show up on both brands along with Brock Lesnar like he's doing now, you're going to start to make you're going to start playing with fire and potentially risk having SmackDown slide back down the irrelevant ladder. But all in all, the focus back on the ruthless aggression era. I would say that SmackDown never fully recovered from this. And obviously, they had the first ever Raw versus SmackDown five-on-five match at Survivor Series uh, 2005. One that SmackDown would actually win, but that was nothing more than an exhibition match. And we knew that. And what's funny about that is that John Cena wasn't even involved in that rivalry when they met at uh, Survivor Series. He was involved in the program with Kurt Angle and wasn't involved in the 10-man tag team match. So that kind of to- tells you where they th- they placed John Cena in terms of their internal hierarchy. They had him defending his world championship or WWE championship against Kurt Angle and the world champion in Batista over on SmackDown entrenched in this bitter rivalry between brands. So right there and then, it was kind of indicative of where they viewed their respective world champions with John Cena being worthy of being on his own. And like I said, from mid to late 2005 and beyond, it really became all about Monday night raw during the ruthless aggression era. But anyway, guys, that's all I got for you today. I hope you enjoyed raw versus SmackDown during the ruthless aggression era, a bit of a different type of show than usual, but I hope it gave you guys some type of context for when I do all these rivalries from the ruthless aggression era. But as always, you can get me on Twitter at adamarco 25 You can get Matt on Twitter at wrestling underscore audio. Or you can email him at realwwepodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, guys, stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you next week.
1: Thanks for listening to the WWE Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a show. Or head to wwepodcast.com.